Hey guys, we have a new giveaway for you this week. Thanks to our partner Beta, we will be giving away three simple being weighted blankets. I'm sure you've heard of the weighted blanket. These blankets help with anxiety, insomnia, and other sleeping problems. They're super comfy and they put you to sleep right away. We'll be giving away three this week to our listeners. Just sign up for the giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway. The Simple Being Blanket retails for $80 and you can actually go and try it out at any beta store around the country. Beta is a retail store designed for discovering, trying, and buying the latest products and innovations around. Find a beta store near you or visit beta.com. That's B-8-T-A.com. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Ian is joined by Fred Santarpia, former chief digital officer at the global media company Condé Nast. Fred, who originated the role of CDO, explains what the role entailed day to day and how he helped bring all of the Condé Nast brands like Vogue, The New Yorker, Wired, and GQ from the print world to the digital realm. Ian and Fred also discuss the challenges of the role and how to build digital experiences and brands that keep you relevant in an increasingly crowded landscape. Mission Daily is created by our team at mission.org. Thanks so much for for hanging out today, Fred. We are excited to have you on the show, and we're going to be talking all things digital. Um, You know, we have talked about in the past this rise of the chief digital officer, and you are at the forefront of that, the person who amassed all the skill sets that that make the chief digital officer uh, one of the new positions in the C-suite. So we're going to get into all of that, but first... How did you get into technology? Yeah, so it's actually actually a it's a great place to start. Um, my my career actually started on the finance side of the business. My first gig at a school was with uh, Arthur Anderson uh, in the financial services side of the business, and I didn't actually make the jump into technology until several years later. Um, I ended up moving over to Universal Music Group, uh, which was a, a very non-standard move at the time but I was looking to kind of transition out of a finance capacity, if you will. And I joined Universal Music, which is the world's largest recorded music company, um, probably uh, at, at one of the most interesting inflection points uh, in its history. It was the year of peak CD sales. And right before the first wave of digital disruption really hit the media industry square between the eyes. And, and music certainly was at the very early early part of that, that disruption curve um, with both, you know, the advent of piracy through services like Napster, and then also the unbundling of the album uh, through services like iTunes. And that industry, um, because of those two factors, was going through rapid consolidation and contraction. Revenues were falling quite a bit. And, you know, as a, as a finance person coming into that company, um, there was a great need to learn how to manage manage down our infrastructure cost, uh, if you will, in order to, to to meet the decline of revenue from recorded music sales. So we had these you know you know large data centers and distribution plants for you know CDs and products and um, these massive technology infrastructures that we really needed to figure out how to manage more cost effectively. So as a finance guy coming in, uh, I was dropped into the deep end of the technology organization, really working very closely with the, the CIO at the time and, you know, learning how, you know, number one, to understand technology's role in the business and then learning how, you know, to, do, to run that, run those parts of the business more cost effectively. And it was kind of a crash course uh, at a very key moment in time for that specific industry. Yeah, that's super interesting. The, uh, the, what a time, like, to be at the peak of, you know, one of the most successful runs in, you know, obviously entertainment, but in like cultural history, right? Like the rise of CDs and the sale of CDs um, coming to that peak. And then, you know, right around the corner, nobody knew it, but was this like complete digital transformation of the entire industry um, and kind of being at, at a front seat of that. It really, it really did change everything, everything overnight. Um, it, it went from, it really went from a situation where, you know, all boats were kind of rising and, you know, the investment in, in content and artists 
um, was increasing significantly because the, the business was basically printing cash. So all of a sudden, just watching the watching the kind of the bottom fall out, and you know, really a, a massive transition in business model is, is what was really going on when you look back on it with perspective, right? You, you were going from a, a a model, a business in which the dominant model was you know the sale and ownership of recorded music in terms of physical product like a CD to what we have now, which is really, you know, the monetization around the, the access of recorded music and the technology only really in the last several years has really caught up to the point where, where, you know, that model has been allowed to, to proliferate and certainly one that's got, you know, the music industry, you know, back on track to, you know, perhaps even record, you know, revenue growth. I think, you know, watching, watching that entire kind of disruption cycle for, for that industry, um, you know, really, really interesting one, certainly for me personally, having been, having been a part of it and having been in the middle of it and seeing, you know, firsthand what companies, you know, can get wrong and, and what companies can, can get right. But two, also giving me hope that as we're in this next phase of disruption for broader media, for retail, for, you know, hospitality, for, you know, transportation, for countless industries, that cycle, you know, can return to growth um, over time, if the right if the right decisions and thoughtfulness is put into place, I want to flash forward to your time as chief digital officer because this was another period of you know unprecedented digital change, and you had kind of gone through you know phase one of that in the music industry, and we'll get get to your time at at Vivo later on. But I want you to kind of paint the picture of like when you became a chief digital officer for Conde. Why was that necessary at the time? Why was this role, I don't know if it was created or, or if it was something that you thought the company needed, but talk us through like, what was the impetus for the teach, chief digital officer role um, at Condé in 2014? So I actually joined, actually joined Condé and Ast in, in 2012. And I joined as uh, the EVP and chief digital officer for, for the entertainment division. The entertainment division had been started about a year prior and it was set up to create um, a feature film, uh, traditional television and digital video extensions of all of the Condé Nast brands from GQ to Wired to Vogue, Vanity Fair, I mean about, about 20 or so brands, brands in all. And um, you know, my responsibility at, as chief digital officer of the entertainment division was really, you know, soup to nuts, running the overall um, digital video business. And that included, and we started that from zero. Uh, that was a blank piece of paper. So that included everything from, you know, really charting the strategy, securing the funding to fund what was effectively a, a, a new division of the company, building the, the technology and the infrastructure uh, to support uh, our video production and distribution, um, securing the distribution deals and the revenue operations infrastructure, and frankly, probably most importantly, you know, attracting top digital talent into a company which at the time was, was very much only known for its excellence in print. So we had a major, major challenge in terms of convincing the marketplace that a, a print media company could not only um, you know, dabble in video, but commit to it. And you know, make it a a skill set and a business that was as as endemic to Condé Nast as as creating magazines was, and so that was that was really the challenge. You know, that startup kind of environment inside of the broader company really allowed us to build kind of a very special culture and prove that digital success at Condé Nast was indeed was indeed possible. So, uh, I was in that role for about two and a half years, uh, and then in 2014. I was named the first chief digital officer for the, the broader organization. And, you know, when I, when I look back, when I look back and, and with some perspective on it now, Ian, I don't know if there was a, a, an absolute moment in time where, you know, the company said, we need a chief digital officer. I, I think it was more about the fact that we had shown that we had had, you know, deep success in, in, in digital video and that that same kind of success would be possible for the more traditional digital business lines, if you will. And you know what I mean by that is if you go back to 2014, you know, this was a moment in time in digital media in which, you know, the pure plays, uh, the Voxes, the Vices, the, the Buzzfeeds, the Refinery29s were, were all scaling 
massive audiences and they were scaling, you know, massive valuations, closing big rounds. Conde, the Conde brands were kind of, kind of just, you know, middling, if you will. So there was kind of this existential question in the building about whether or not the brands had lost relevance with younger audiences. And, you know, the company really needed to, to figure out exactly how we were going to answer that question. And, and you know, for me, I never believed that the brands had lost their relevance. Um, to me, it was more of a, of a question about the company's, you know, commitment and, you know, our, our dedication to excellence in the tactics of the internet, if you will. And I think, you know, frankly, the company just had fallen behind with a slow start um, as it came, when it came to, you know, adapting to changes in consumer behavior on the internet. And really it was an exercise in fixing things and blocking and tackling, you know, to, to, to rebuild the expectations of, of what the digital business could be inside of Condé Nast and create an expectation for the same level of excellence that our editorial teams on the print side had demanded for 100 years. Yeah. What is so interesting to me about the print space, because I used to work in the print space as well, that I think some of our listeners might not know is that it's very insular. Like each magazine works as its own like entity, right? Like you have this entire publication that each like, you know, publication that goes out each episode or each specific magazine or quarterly or whatever it is, is its own unique entity. And then the next one kind of is its own unique entity. And in the digital world, the entire mindset around that completely changes. The way that your consumers consume that changes. The way that your team is structured changes. The way that the technology stack that you're working off changes. The way that advertisers are by completely changes. Um, You were at the center of the rebuild specifically of infrastructure, of technology, um, of, you know, data science. What was that like to work on both the business side, but also like the tech stack? Sure, sure. Um, so, so number one, I would say, I, I, you know, it's, it's interesting, right? Because I think thanks to my time in the music industry, I, I was actually kind of uniquely positioned to, you know, figure out how to address this um, in a company like Condé Nast, right? Um, if you look at how the record labels uh, used to be structured, it's not too dissimilar from how a publishing company operates, right? You've got totally um, individual, label, individual labels like a Def Jam or an Interscope versus a, a Vanity Fair or a Vogue. And in a lot of ways, you know, they operate as very independent or certainly siloed kingdoms with these incredible iconic um, personalities at the top, whether it was a, an L.A. Reid or Jimmy Iovine or a Anna Wintour or a, or a Graydon Carter. And, you know, in some cases, they're also, you know, encouraged culturally to be competitive with each other. You know, so I, I felt that coming into the CDO role at Condé, I, I had seen the blueprint before and I had, a I think, a better understanding than someone else who might have come into the role on, on how to structure operations for success. And, you know, the first question, Ian, that everybody wants you to answer when you step into a role like that is whether or not you're going to let the brands run their own digital operations or whether or not you're going to centralize. And I always thought that was a kind of a BS question, if you will, right? Because the, the truth is, the reality is that there are some things that the corporate organization is way better suited for um, to, to do effectively and cost efficiently and, and with a high degree of performance than, than the individual operating companies are. And there are certain things that the individual operating companies or brands should be leading that corporate has no business getting in the middle of. And, and finding that intersection between things that should be done horizontally for synergy and efficiency and things that should be done vertically and distinctly at the brand level based on the very unique permissions that these brands have with their audiences is really the key to success. So for us, you know, specifically at Connie Nast, things like platform engineering technology, our data science teams, all of our, our um, revenue operations, inventory management, yield, those sorts of things that we felt um, every brand really would benefit from riding upon and that we didn't want to rebuild, you know, 
three or six or even 10 times, those would be the types of things that we would, we would run centrally. Now the, the reality is that when you're talking about you're building something like a content management system for an editorial company, you know, sure there are, there are nuances and differences in the types of features and functionality that, you know, maybe the New Yorker needs versus a, a Bon Appetit or a Teen Vogue. But the reality is that you can pretty much get 98% of the way there from, from running those things at a, at a central level and running a singular roadmap. Um, but I felt also felt very, very strongly that the brands really did have very unique permissions and very different authorities with their audiences. And, you know, central resources that sit in strategy groups, strategy teams and centers of excellences and are not at the grassroots level of the brand and really living and breathing the brand values and the connection with the audience on a day-to-day -day basis are just simply not in a position to do, you know, really thoughtful brand development. So in those cases, things like audience development um, and, you know, analytics and certainly our, our social media teams and anything related to content, we were going from a, a content organization in which the predominant form of content was long form journalism. And now all of a sudden we needed to be proficient in long form journalism and short form video and audio, both, you know, podcasting and voice platform strategies and social video and motion graphics and GIFs and on and on and on, right? So anything related to seeding investment in content creation or audience development, building that connection um, with consumers on brand development for new product lines, that all sat vertically at the brands. That's how we managed the business. Really that intersection between horizontal capabilities, partnerships, platforms, and then on top of that, that layer of capabilities, you know, really operating you know, very distinct and thoughtful vertical strategies for each of the different operating units. So how did you align your team around those things? Because I think, you know, one of the things that strikes me as very similar to like, you know, a technology company where they have different product SKUs and product owners, and they have, you know, a PM that manages those different things. You know, one of the benefits of being a big company and having a bunch of brands or having a bunch of products is the fact that you can share best practices across all of those, right? Like you have that hub and spoke model where something that worked really well for, you know, one one podcast or one magazine or one type of video series that would work really well for another one that maybe the creatives on that team haven't thought of or PM or, or whatever it is. Um, so what was the way that you aligned your team? Like who fell under you and how did you look at um, putting people in the best place to be successful? Right. Um, number one, I had a lot of direct reports. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Um, the, the chief technology officer of the company reported to me, um, our, you know, head of business development and our partnerships head w was part of my central team. Also our head of research and social media and audience development, um, business operations and revenue operations. These were kind of the people who sat in the, in the center of, in the center of the organization as, as my leadership team. And then each individual brand, we had digital directors a de facto general manager uh, with, uh, with editorial oversight as well. Um, you know, I would say when it comes to best practices, it's really, it's really an interesting thing, right? Best practices are great, but, you know, again, only if you're really paying attention to the nuances of each of the, each of the individual brands and what their permissions are, right? And not, and not going too vanilla across the board. Like here are the, here are the, the 10 best practices that you should use to, to master Instagram, right? Like that kind of thing to me doesn't have a whole hell of a lot of value when you're looking at brands as diverse as, as wired and, and, and brides, because what brides is going to need to do on Instagram to be successful versus wired are two completely different things. And so the best practice thing is, is an interesting one because you've got to be really careful that the folks that are compiling those types of things are, are really sensitive to the actual uses. And you know, for a brand like Wired, they may not want to focus on Instagram at all because their audience is on Twitter. Those types of things are really important to, to pay attention. So we would always try to encourage folks, you know, to really move out of the theoretical and you know, really get down to the brass tacks of, of the use case. Less theoretical, more practical, right? What's the actual practical use case of these of these best practices for for each brand? And and on the product development side, 
my role as chief digital officer was was to make sure that all of Conde was moving forward. So there's a, a natural tension between the product roadmap and the motivation for someone who's responsible for moving a brand forward and the product roadmap and motivation for, for, you know, what's going to return, you know, to the greatest good and the greatest investment, you know, for the overall company. One of the techniques I would use to manage this is to try and find things that were very important to the individual brand and let them lead in terms of the ideation and creation of a set of consumer features. And as we would build those consumer features out, we would then think about, okay, what is the, what is the 80 to 90% of that that may be relevant to you know, the, rest of the, the rest of the brands in the building? And how do we make sure that this is engineered in a way that allows these things that we're building to be easily adopted by sister brands rather than having to you know, rebuild you know, something very similar from scratch? So we would try to find that mix of kind of hero brand that could lead and then you know, make sure that from an architecture standpoint, the features were being built in a, in a scalable enough way that we weren't starting from zero every time that we wanted to adopt a similar feature at a, at a, at a different brand. What were some of the unique challenges that you had from building that infrastructure? You know, we've seen such a rise in data and how people consume media and the ways and, you know, likes and shares and the importance of every single type of metrics. What is important? What isn't important that all have unique challenges that ultimately you have to report to your customers, right? Like that you have to report to, you know, the folks that are buying access to your audience. What was, what were those challenges like in building that and making sure that you were building with, you know, your customers in mind and also, um, you know, with your consumers in mind? Another great question. And I think, I think kind of that gets down to the core of, of kind of what a, a chief digital officer actually is. Um, you know, it's, it's a very ambiguous title. Yeah. It's a marketing role, you know, in other organizations, it's, it's more of a technology role, but I think, you know, the true CDO is someone who has a, a really deep, you know, understanding and appreciation for, for consumer behavior and, you know, understands how to leverage technology and marketing and content and all the different elements of the business to respond to those changes in a way that, you know, allows the business to continue to grow and to scale. And I don't even like to think about it in terms of, in terms of just you know, digital transformation. I, I think about it as, you know, the transformation of the overall consumer relationship end to end, right? Both online and offline, certainly with digital capabilities and, and technology playing a, a dominant role in that transformation, but you know, it's very important not to think about it in such a siloed way. We really started in a place where we were, the technology, the, the, the websites were, were slow or, or often broken. We were on, I think, eight or 10 different content management systems on the back end. Wow. Um, we were rebuilding the same features over and over again. We really had no, no data layer at all. We had, our, our, we had a very powerful first-party database of users from our print business, but um, our, our data infrastructure on the digital side was, was nascent at best. We had no real partnerships with the big platforms. I mean, we really had a lot of work to do to really you know, fix broken things. So the, the first stage of the transformation was really, you know, let's fix the things that we know are broken. Let's bring excellence and rigor back into the operation of the digital business. And let's see the impact of that. And, and that wasn't a very visionary strategy, but fixing things that are broken is a very, is, is a very smart strategy and it returns value quickly. Um, Conde, in the, the first year that I was chief digital officer, we went from a, a monthly audience number of about 40 to 45 million visitors per month to our web properties to you know, well over 100 million by the end of that first year. So, and, and that didn't come from doing anything other than you know, really focusing on the basics, making sure the sites were fast, you know, performant on mobile, that the ad products weren't intrusive, looking at ways to optimize and reduce things like bounce rate, increase engagement and time on site. And so, you know, that, that first year was all about fixing the foundation. And then once we had that foundation set where we felt we were operating, you know, as a single entity and that we were working with companies to make it really simple to do business where they could make one phone call, access, you know, one team that could speak for the full value of the portfolio. Um, so we could do smart, smart partnership deals. 
um, that we had our, our revenue operations infrastructure in place so we could actually track our inventory, that we could improve our yield. That new normal um, allowed us to start to get creative and invest in, you know, much more exciting things for the business, like, you know, paid content models, um, e-commerce in ways that we had not participated before. And then certainly our data strategy, which we spent a great deal of time on, you know, Connie Nass, as, as you know, um, great relationships in the advertising and marketing space, built, you know, traditional brand advertising where, you know, luxury brand wants to be seen on Vogue or wants to be seen on Vanity Fair. We're a, a company is a no brainer to do business on that level, but we really invested the, the time and the effort and the resources in building a comprehensive data infrastructure that allowed the company to launch uh, a very significant business in performance marketing as well. That was, um, we, we call that, that business Spire and um, built the capabilities to be able to work with marketers to find audiences um, in places where we might not traditionally look for them through contextual targeting means and match their behavior on our, on our properties with their you know, offline, online purchase activity to you know, create predictive models that we were you know, optimizing in real time and using to provide you know, a much higher degree of ROI than you know, we had ever been able to do in the past. So, but that was a phase two, phase three, if you will, you know, after we had, uh, had the house in order. And I think you know, as a, any chief digital officer going into a new job, I think one of the, the you know, first things they've got to figure out is you know, whether or not the vision that, that they can paint for the future you know, is possible based on the, the foundation they're working with or do they have to really look at that first before they can start you know, mapping to, the, to that future state. Yeah, you mentioned Spire and I wanted to ask about that. Um, that and Copilot specifically, I would love for you to talk about like this buyer build scenario. You said you're using like seven or eight content management systems um, and you made a pretty big bet on building your own proprietary content platform and building your own proprietary data platform. Can you talk about like what went into that decision? Who were the kind of people on the team that made that decision? Obviously it was a huge bet for the company and, uh, and had a huge return. You know, my, my general, my general philosophy is that if you're going to be, you know, in the restaurant business, you don't outsource the oven, right? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, totally. you know, Condé's a, a, an editorial company at heart. It's not a technology company. It's a content company. It's a company, it's a content company that's got to be great at technology. And so, you know, we felt it was important early on to really make sure that, you know, we were building something that was very thoughtful to, you know, our specific, our specific needs. I wouldn't say, you know, you need to build everything, you know, inside of your, your, technology stack. I certainly wouldn't recommend, you know, building an ad server or a DMP. I think there are plenty of solutions out there that, you know, companies can, can leverage and there's been, you know, incredible development resources put against those things. Right. I think with the CMS that was so near and dear to what our, our core differentiator was as a company that being able to manage that as uniquely as the content is that Condé creates um, was a, was an important strategic decision for us. And thankfully, thankfully it worked out and, you know, it created efficiency for the company, um, not just in terms of how products are developed, but also in the amount of time it takes for editors to create and publish content. Um, you know, the cost, you know, per post has gone down significantly. The amount of time it takes has gone significantly. And that's a platform thanks to the hard work of, of uh, the CTO of the company and his team is scaling out globally now. The first time ever we'll have a, a technology platform that is truly global. So that's very, very exciting. It was exciting for me at the time uh, before I left Condé and, and I'm sure it's exciting now. And, you know, on the data side, you know, very, very similar. We felt that one of our unique um, competitive advantages was this massive first party database that we had built up uh, from, you know, a, a history in magazine publishing right? Where we're not just, we don't just have email addresses. You've got home addresses and you very much know who these consumers are and, you know, figuring out how to leverage that unique competency and, you know, build specifically to, you know, be able to unlock the value of that for our specific properties felt like a place where it made sense to invest, you know, the time and effort 
to be really out in front on that. And I, I think if you look at where Conde is in terms of its data infrastructure um, and its ability to its ability to drive performance marketing businesses, and I know they recently launched a, their health business, which is which is driven predominantly by uh, their data infrastructure and performance marketing capabilities. I think they're way, way, way out in front of other traditional media companies. And that's allowing them to take more business out of the marketplace and protect their, protect their market share. So, you know, those were two areas that we felt, you know, because of our relationship, because of our dominance in, in editorial and because of our, our deep relationship and first party data um, with consumers, we felt it made sense to you know, invest the time, resources, resources, and effort. In other places, you know, we very much looked at, you know, SaaS products and, and, and things that didn't need to be rebuilt from scratch because, you know, great products were already out there. But those were two areas we felt really accentuated our competitive advantage as a company. Yeah. Did you, did you get any pushback from that? Did you have any, like anyone on the, on the border leadership team that was like, why don't we just go find someone else and, and not, not hire it? Look, you 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 obviously have those debates for sure, right? Um, build versus buy is just one of the thoughtful analysis you do when you're looking at you know major technology products like that. So yes, obviously that was that was certainly part of certainly part of the equation. But you know we also felt that you know again Conde is the you know when it comes to creating content and publishing content, Conde Nest is the the, the tip of the spear, the, the 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 best of the best, and the off-the-shelf products, particularly on the content management side, um, simply weren't there to support all of the use cases that we were looking at as a company. But absolutely, and you're always you're always you're not jumping into anything without doing you know really thoughtful work on it. And um, you know the transition to co-pilot for the company was not a was not a quick one. We piloted with um, one or two brands in 2014. We didn't move the last brand to the new platform. I want to say it might have been 2017. So it was like a three-year process in which we very thoughtfully moved over those brands when we felt that the platform was robust enough to support the use cases behind them, right? So, you know, again, understanding, you know, the nuances in each, each brand's business is really critical. But, you know, piloting with one or two brands, really learning understanding if we were on the right track, managing the cost and the investment behind that to understand if it was really a path there that made sense. And then over time, you know, once we worked out the bugs, we understood exactly where we thought the risks were, you know, moving forward with the larger, larger brands, the higher revenue brands that we felt uh, the platform was, was then ready to, to, to adopt. How involved were you in the acquisitions of some of the other brands that you added, uh, like Back Channel and Ars Technica and I stuff like was that? Not involved in, was not involved in Ars Technica. Um, that, that predated my, um, my time at, at Conde as, uh, as Chief Digital Officer. Um, was involved in the Back Channel acquisition. And more notably, I would say, just because of the, the size of the business, Pitchfork as well. Um, yeah. And that was one in which... With my music background, I was very familiar with Pitchfork, and as we were looking to, you know, expand the portfolio into you know to areas of editorial that we felt um, we were you know underpenetrated in, music is one of the most popular and dominant you know forms of media uh, you know on the internet. Certainly with millennials, certainly with Gen Z, and you know Pitchfork was speaking with an editorial voice about that content, which is so popular, and more importantly, they were doing it um, you know in a style and approach that I felt, you know, had very similar DNA to the quality that we demanded at Conde. And, and so I felt it was a very strong fit for, for our portfolio. And, and I led the acquisition for that, uh, back in uh, 2015. When you were making those decisions, or, or you could even just talk about like your specific, or instead of specifically, you could just talk about like a broader, you know, how you look at things like that. Is it, size of the team type of content like style of content reach i mean i'm sure it's a combination of all of those things but is there anything that you particularly look at i mean i know that there's certain especially like smaller media entities now can get to a point where it's like they have such a strong following built organically that you know when that type of you know decision comes in for a bigger organization to say hey this we really love their stuff 
uh, we want them, you know, in our portfolio. There's, you know, a lot more opportunities than there used to be um, for things like that, for those types of acquisitions. Were there certain things that you looked at that you were like, oh, this is an obvious, you know, like industry leading or market leading signal rather than noise that you saw that you were like, oh, they're doing it right? Well, yeah. So, so number one, I would say, I think everybody, you know, at, at the time expects, expects the digital guy to go for scale. Right. And I won't name names, but we looked at a lot of, you know, digital pure plays that had scale that we ended up, we ended up passing on. And what made Pitchfork unique is that, you know, it shared, it shared that DNA of editorial excellence and, you know, they were winning, you know, they won a, a magazine of the year award. I think it might've been 2013 or 2014. I mean, they were competing against our brands, even though they were a digital, you know, a digital only property, but, you know, really in, in looking at Pitchfork at the time, um, I liked them because again, the quality of their journalism was excellent, but they had a couple of things that were really going for them from a business standpoint too. And that, um, you know, their, their readership, um, extremely passionate, extremely engaged. And when you look at the metrics for you know, their loyalty and their habit um, of how often they're returning to Pitchfork, you know, it tells a story that lends itself really well for a consumer revenue stream and a paid content business. And, you know, so the potential there, you know, to unlock, you know, consumer revenue and dual revenue stream for that media property, um, you know, it is very rich. And, you know, I don't know if anyone will pursue it, but certainly at the time, you know, you look for those kind of metrics when you think about potential, you know, down the road to unlock those additional revenue streams. And then, you know, secondarily, um, and shouldn't surprise you because they're, they're, you know, they're in the music space, but they were, um, you know, running, you know, series of, you know, multiple profitable live events, those types of factors, um, journalistic excellence, a genre of content um, that we did not have a pure play editorial property in, although almost every brand in the building was, was covering music in some way, shape or another. Um, so there's lots of ways and lots of synergies um, to, to looking at that as, a, as, a, as an addition to, addition to Condé at the time. I'm very proud of that acquisition and being able to add that to the uh, portfolio of the company. With something like Back Channel, where you know, business, obviously you have Wired, which is, you know, a behemoth uh, in the in the marketplace, but with something like Backchannel, where it's much smaller, much more focused, it's much more of a, you know, smaller market demographic, but potentially a much more profitable demographic, which with the quality of, of people, you know, the, the narrow focus on the value of a, of a, of a readership or a viewership, or listenership like like something like that. How did you view those type of acquisitions, which are not purely a hey numbers game? Um, and not you just detailed that Pitchfork wasn't that way, but I just mean I think a lot of people just like you said chase volume of X amount, you know, million uniques, and that's that's the way to go with a publication like a back channel or and not specifically them, but with a you know demographic of people similar to a wired or that type of you know tech forward consumer that is um, potentially a little bit more of a savvy you know content consumer is there you know how do you look at that type of of a company versus something that's just you know a broader pure volume play well well to me it was it was always about you know whenever whenever i whenever I looked at a, at a editorial property as a potential acquisition target, it was always about honoring, you know, what I thought, you know, Condé Nast was, which was, you know, a home for, you know, the, the editorial voices that, you know, that really matter and that are doing, you know, fantastic work in journalism. And, you know, Stephen Levy at the time, you know, certainly fit that mold. And of course, in any acquisition, you know, the company would take on whether or not I was leading it or somebody else, it's gotta be a good business first and foremost. Right. Um, you know, there are different business models that you can look at that, you know, may not have, may not be rooted in scale that can support that can support that case. Right. So obviously the marketplace is moving heavily towards, you know, paid consumer revenue streams. And, you know, we certainly saw, you know, Wired is, you know, one of those opportunities where, you know, there's a really unique and differentiated voice in connection with the consumer. And, you know, we certainly saw the work that was happening at Back Channel and we thought that the engagement levels there would, you know, would certainly support and continue to strengthen um, the, the Wired relationship with the reader. So, 
it felt like a natural, a natural ex- extension, you know, for us at the time. And again, I'll just say it again. I mean, there are plenty of scale properties out there that, you know, we looked at plenty of digital impressions, plenty of audience, plenty of big gaudy numbers of video views and visits and all those things, but it just didn't feel like us. And, you know, I think one of the most important things that you can do, you know, as a company is, you know, really protect your authority and really protect your authenticity. And, yeah. you know, if you start stretching too far out of that zone where the consumer trusts you and, and the value that you provide and the connection that you have, I think you get to a really dangerous place and, you know, you can threaten, you can threaten your overall business. So, you know, any of the, any of the acquisitions we looked at, we tried to always lead with thoughtfulness on whether or not we felt the voice of the brand, you know, really fit, you know, us and the portfolio. And we'd often have, you know, many of the other editors in the building, you know, really spend time with the, really spend time with the content and make sure that it wasn't just saying, oh, we think this is a good fit, but really kind of getting that blessing of, you know, the folks who are living and breathing it every day uh, before we would pull the trigger. Well, and then once you had the infrastructure to help make those, you know, properties, achieve economies of scale that you don't have. I mean, I think that that's one of the things when these smaller organizations, you know, as someone is speaking from experience here of a smaller media organization, that there are certain economies of scale that once you hit, like having that, you know, that brain trust that you were talking about, having you and the CTO and the business development team, the technology stack that you can layer on, you know, decreasing time, you know, post time, all that stuff. That's where you look at, those type of opportunities and say, Hey, if they just had a little bit more professionalism and uh, a little bit better, you know, insights into business models and a little bit more, you know, just general help, we could probably elevate this brand to a level that, that they couldn't do on their own or would take them much longer. And I think that that's the thing, whether it's a product, you know, and this is just general acquisition strategy rather than you know, just, it doesn't have to be media, but specifically with media, you're looking at people who are probably really good, you know, content curators and and creators, but don't have the rest of that stuff that you could bring, um, that you could say, Hey, as Fred, we can bring a digital presence that has massive, you know, economies of scale. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's all definitely true. And it, it certainly factors into your analysis when you're, when you're kind of, you're thinking through these types of transactions. I would also just say that, you know, these companies find success for a reason and on their own, and they're usually yep. very scrappy and they know how to get things done. You know, you, you, you don't want to lose that element of it when you integrate into, you know, a major organization that that scrappy way of doing things, um, is, is a critical component. And, you know, I, I actually like, you know, looking at it the other way too, Ian, where you're injecting a little bit of different type of energy into the culture to help accelerate yeah. the, the behavioral transformation, if you will. How did you view social channels during your time? I know this is something that from like a governance standpoint, people and, you know, CTOs and CIOs, um, you know, mostly just falls under marketing. You know, it's not something that is traditionally something that technology handles, but for, you know, content, obviously it is one of the true accelerators, but it comes with a massive downside. You don't own the access to the audience and, you know, earlier days, specifically, you know, Facebook um, being the case that having pages back in the day meant a totally different thing. And, you know, whether it's Google's algorithm or whether it's um, you know, Facebook changing or Instagram or Twitter or whatever you, whatever it is, not owning your own audience on those platforms is potentially extremely problematic. How did you view social during your time? Yeah, it's another great question. Uh, you know, so, so number one, I would just say, you know, I, I very much believe that, you know, you can't force audience to come to you. You, you have to go where the audience is. So, you know, acknowledging, you know, that you must have a strategy, for these platforms is, is critical. And, and, you know, that wasn't always, certainly hasn't always been the case in companies that I've worked for. Um, you know, in, in some cases there was very much a, a walled garden approach for a very long time. Um, but you do need, you do need to acknowledge these platforms and build, you know, competency and expertise in activating natively on them. I would say it gets dangerous if you start to over rely on any one third party platform. Right. Um, whether it's yep. you know, YouTube or Facebook or 
the more your business relies on those platforms to succeed, they can still be great partners to you, but that doesn't mean that they can't have significant impacts on your business um, when they decide to, to pivot or change direction for, for any reason. So, you know, one of the first things that we did, you know, at Conde was build, um, you know, it had not existed prior. Uh, we built a very, um, very significant audience development discipline. And, you know, that wasn't necessarily just about, you know, building, you know, audience, but it was about getting a lot smarter and a lot more diversified on where our audiences were and how to activate against them. Yeah. You know, in the beginning, my approach to the social platforms was to, to participate in not all, but most of, you know, the new beta programs and products that they were releasing, you know, we would have, you know, pretty much one foot in one foot out. We would test with a couple brands in the portfolio, but hold back the others waiting to see, um, you know, what the, what the response would be. I would say over time, you know, my, my philosophy changed to be more about, you know, really being much more methodical about ensuring that there's a real return there because, you know, you could spend a lot of resource time and effort in testing and activating all these different platforms without really having much to show for it. So, you know, really understanding where you can drive, you know, the greatest business value first and foremost, I think is, I, I think it's the, the first decision out of the gate. And if it's not generating revenue, then secondarily, is it, you know, generating audience that can be monetized in other ways elsewhere? If it is great, you're still investing time and resources, but if you're not really generating either of those two things in mass, it's really hard to keep, a significant presence alive on some of those platforms. And, you know, what you'll also find, or I have found Ian, is that, you know, those, those things come in, come in ebbs and flows, right? You know, there are moments in time where you know, you're really heavy on one platform and you're light on another and then vice versa based on, you know, you know, where the market demand is and, you know, where those platforms have invested in business infrastructures that support, you know, third party partners and their, and their business concerns. So critical part of the business uh, companies absolutely, absolutely need to be there, but they need to be mindful that they're not, they're not betting the store on any one platform. Yeah. I think one of the biggest problems is just that social channels at their purest utility are a communication platform with your audience in a way that's like public. And so when you're a content creator, I think a lot of times we just like see the hammer or, you know, every every problem is a nail when you have the hammer is like, oh, this is a great place to push our content, right? Because you're like, we have all this great stuff. We want to push it out there. But in actuality, it's more about, you know, creating the dialogue. And I think that if you look at the companies that are the best on social, um, they're the ones who have the most like transparent conversations in public with their fans. You know, it's not the ones that are, you know, just constantly pushing their stuff over over the course of um, X amount of posts a day and all that sort of stuff, right? Right. It's also it's also about about you know social activity to to what business end, right? And you know, are you are you monetizing that relationship through one means or another? And I think um, you've seen you know plenty of, of media companies build you know significant you know email product strategies to advantage their direct traffic and you know build more audiences to their their owned and operated, so they're less reliant on social partners as a, as a, in terms of the overall pie of where their audience comes from and, you know, trying to build a more engaged connection through, through the email channel, which also can be monetized, you know, lots of different ways. Often, you know, you'll find that that could be the most engaged audience of all because the commitment to sign up is a different barrier to entry than just kind of following on a, on a Facebook or an Instagram page. Yeah. I mean, we have, you know, we have seven podcasts and, and then like our, our core channel, but I mean, we have segments and all sorts of different lists. I mean, each type of each email segment or list like wants communication to happen in a totally different way. And it allows them to get, you know, episode updates or, uh, you know, company updates or just, you know, general newsletter, you know, kind of like essentially, you know, the morning's article of the day, newsletter of the day sort of stuff. Um, but I think that what's so interesting is that those are all different use cases for one type of technology. And that's what's so exciting, right? Is like, I think for so long, people were using all of these different things in kind of like one way. And the complexity of how many different options we have allows, you know, different sort of things to be at play. And that's, I just think it's super exciting for technologists and for, uh, you know, in media, it's it's beyond exciting, but for anyone, because you can now 
figure out why people are using stuff. Like what is the utility that you're providing rather than kind of like, you know, older days when it was a lot more um, reactive than proactive. Right. And I think, I think, um, right. And, that, and that's where the, the data part of the business is really interesting too. Right. Because, you know, if, if, if you invest it in the effort to really get your, your data infrastructure and your data capabilities down, you can start to slice and dice, you know, your audience into all sorts of specific cohorts and, and create all different types of use cases to create, you know, you know, new revenue and new value for your business. Right. And, and so, you know, making sure that you're putting that data in the hands of the people who are actually running the day-to-day of the operations. And it's not just sitting in, you know, reporting functions, if you will, is critical to getting, you know, maximum value out of that. And, and, you know, making sure that your own channels are driving a significant part of your business so that you're, you are less reliant on third parties to, to manage your business. Okay. So not to save the, the best for last year, but, um, I'm a huge fan of Vivo, you know, little background on me from probably the time that you were the GM, uh, was when, you know, those three years I was in the army and I was deployed to Afghanistan for a period of that. So I watched a lot of Vivo, uh, YouTube videos, um, during that time, because that's how we would play music, um, was being able to do that. And so I have, there's a special place in my heart for that. You know, you were, instrumental in, uh, you know, consistently being, having Vivo be the number one video property in all of YouTube with billions of, of views each month. You created Certified, uh, which is videos that had surpassed 100 million views. You created uh, Lyft and a bunch of other stuff. Um, you know, we, we can't do 30 minutes on it, but I, I, I wish we could here. I would just love to learn, like, from the fact that you led the product and technology team, what were some of the the kind of challenges that you saw early days with building this like, you know, massive digital property. Yeah. I mean, look, this is 2009 now, right? So it's a very different world. Um, it wasn't a, wasn't a, a, a business unto itself. So, you know, the challenge we had was to go to the market and say, look, we've got these fantastic, you know, short form video assets that were made for the internet. And, they are premium. They are highly produced. They, you know, they are done by world-class directors and they feature the most socially relevant celebrities on the planet. You know, we have this pipeline of content that is going to generate, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of views for each of our top premieres in, you know, a seven to 10 day period. And that audience is, you know, of similar scale and engagement and, you know, and reach to an episode of primetime television. Therefore, advertiser, marketer, you know, you should be willing to invest the same type of marketing dollars in music video content that you're investing in, in broadcast. And, you know, this was at a moment in time where, you know, we knew that broadcast dollars were going to start shifting online, but it was going to be, a, you know, years and years before it started to happen at scale. And so the main challenge for, you know, the product and technology organization in those days was to ensure that the revenue infrastructure around making sure that you know we can we could follow these videos around around the internet wherever we distributed them and that we could target the audience correctly and it could be measured correctly um, and, you know at scale was was all being built in a way that you know big agencies and advertisers and marketers were used to you know used to transacting and spending on in the same way they had done you know for other forms of video you know, but we, we knew that the content was popular and we knew that the content um, would drive, you know, massive audiences. And the challenge really was to prove that, you know, the return on investment would be there for marketers and advertisers if they chose to invest in this format of content in the same way that um, they had done for other, other forms of content. So that's really where we focused our effort. I mean, lots of effort on our, you know, our content and programming strategy, obviously lots of originals and, and live programming you know, lots of focus on, on, you know, international expansion in those early days, but, but certainly the goal was to prove that that could be a, a, a massive ad supported business, which, you know, in those days, you know, simply wasn't in the DNA of, of the record labels ad supported revenue lines were, were, were simply just not significant in those days. Well, and so it was, and correct me if I'm wrong. So it was a joint venture between Universal Music Group, Sony Music Entertainment, and EMI. Is that correct? 
Yeah, we um we we actually so I was working at Universal at the time and and we had started incubating it and you know we realized very quickly at Universal that the the what we were working on with with you know YouTube would be much more powerful if uh, if we looked at it as more of an industry thing and that we could deliver because right consumers again keeping the consumer you know at the forefront right the consumer doesn't know or care what corporate entity you know Lady Gaga assigned to right or you know, you know, Britney Spears is signed to, right? They care about seeing, you know, their favorite artists' videos. You know, we knew that if, you know, we tried to do this as a independent, you know, joint venture, you know, with Sony Music, who I believe at the time was the second largest recording music company and, you know, work with EMI, who is, you know, also one of the majors and many other smaller independent uh, indie labels, if you will, that we would be a far more compelling offering to consumers than if we just went out with Universal on our own. And that was really the impetus to spin it out and, and become, become its own entity, which I think was, I think was the right decision. It's such a simple concept and so difficult in practice, you know, to kind of make those, those kind of ideas. It's just wild to think about that time and how the music industry viewed music videos. Cause you just like, we always talk about, you know, especially in media, like what's, what's old is, is new again all the time. And you look at like total request live was so popular. I mean, I remember going home from school and, you know, wanting to see the, whatever video of the day, right. There's something so visceral. And then now that artists were, are so accessible through social channels the fact that there was just a place that you could go to see the most recent videos is so common sense looking back on it now, but back then was just, and no wonder it took off so fast. Well, I think, I think the big thing that the big thing that we got right is, is that you could upload, you know, official cop, you could upload copies of the music video, you know, all over the place. So, you know, if there was an official copy of like, you know, Rihanna umbrella, there might be 18,000 duplicate copies of varying quality and cuts that would confuse the user. But over time, you know, you know, really working closely with the UT product team, you know, they were able to channel results into the premium HD copies. So, you know, when the consumer really was looking for that video, it became much easier to find through the Vivo partnership and interface. So all of a sudden, instead of fragmenting those views over 18,000 assets, you were channeling all of those views on a single asset you know, therefore you've got the audience and reach and engagement to you know, drive real, real meaning with major advertisers. And then it became a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because the money starts to flow in against music video, you know, more people in creating music video because the money's there. So it, it became this renaissance, if you will, for, you know, that, that format of content, which I think is still going on to this day. Um, and it's such a unique form of artistic expression. I think it's just phenomenal. And, you know, I hope music video continues to maintain its popularity in the coming years. I mean, it will. I look at the Old Town Road video. I mean, this is, it dates when we're doing this podcast, but I think, you know, it's, it's something that I think, you know, like you said, we always, we always look for scale. Yeah. You, 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 the idea was to figure out how to channel maximum audience into the content that the consumer was really looking for and, and, you know, and reduce the friction in that process. And I think, I think Vivo did that very successfully. And I think, Vivo continues to monetize those assets very successfully. And it's, you know, probably, you know, one of the most, you know, successful digital ventures to ever come out of the record label specifically. So yeah, I'm very proud of, very proud of what we accomplished at Vivo in those early days. You know, we talked a little bit at the top about, you know, how the role of CDO is changing and really because it's brand new and every company is completely different. I mean, the role of CIO is changing, the role of CTO, how you organize your company is different for, everybody we interview, but specifically, you know, with, with chief digital officers of the future, where do you think that this, this role kind of leads, um, or is it just completely different by industry? Yeah. You know, it's, um, it's interesting, right? Because I think, I think the chief digital officer role kind of got its start, you know, at companies that realized that they were playing from behind, right? So let's hire someone that's put them, you know, explicitly in charge of accelerating our digital capabilities, um, and, and playing a bit of playing a bit of catch up, you know, I, but I think, you know, what's, what's challenging about that is the thinking is, is siloed and, you know, siloed thinking artificially limits the growth of, of a lot, lot of companies. So, you know, I would hope over time, you know, transformation and, and not just digital transformation, but again, that concept of, you know, transformation of the end to end consumer experience, both online and offline, 
I would hope that that just becomes part of general management, the expectations on general management and, you know, building that culture of being adaptive and agile into the overall way that, you know, companies manage their organizations. So it'll be interesting to see if, you know, three years from now, five years from now, we're still talking about CDOs or whether or not, you know, peak CDO is kind of right now. And, and, you know, and in the future, it just becomes part of a COO's job or the CEO's job, certainly uh, the CTO's job, et cetera. Well, I think you nailed it earlier when you said that the CDO is necessary, and I'm paraphrasing you here, but that the CDO is necessary to control like the consumer, you know, experience. Like if you're a consumer business, um, and whether that's media, whether it's a consumer technology company, you know, whatever it is, you're going to have digital interactions with your consumers every single day. You need to have someone that oversees that. And I think, you know, again, to your point at the beginning, the CMO is involved in this, the CIO is involved in this, the CTO is involved in this. It is a cross-functional thing, you know, and maybe that person is, you know, maybe it's like you said, centers of excellence, or maybe it's, you know, just each person owns a little bit, but um, having somebody who, if you're a consumer company that has those consumer digital experiences, that oversight, I think is, is going to be critical for everyone you know, no matter what industry you're in. Yeah, I think, I think, look, what we're really talking about is, is, is thoughtful transformation, right. And, you know, having a management team that is, is mindful to, you know, continuing to transform with, you know, where the market is going. And part of that is having, you know, a deep understanding of, of how consumer behavior is evolving. And it's, you know, it's not just an external thing. It's also an internal thing. I would say the expectations of employees and how they function and what their expectations are from a, from a workplace and um, is also changing dramatically. And so, you know, an eye on transformation of your internal employee experience is also critical as companies continue to, to turn the corner and, you know, respond to where the market's headed. All right, let's get into the lightning round. Fast and easy questions. That's what the lightning round is about. Fast and easy, just like the lightning platform from Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash build mobile apps to learn how you can build apps faster and easier, just like the lightning round. Fast and easy questions. Are you ready, Fred? <laughs> I'm ready, Ian. Number one, what app are you using on your phone that is the most fun? Uh, the app I use the most is definitely Spotify. I'm on it constantly. I'm in the gym almost every day of the week and I, I can't work out without my music. So it's Spotify. What is your favorite recent book or podcast that you've read or listened to recently? Oh, um, uh, I, so my, my, I love the, um, I love the, uh, Tim Robbins podcast. It's one of my favorites. Um, I, not Tim, uh, Tim Ferriss. I'm sorry. I was like, Tim Robbins has a podcast. That's crazy. Sorry. I'm losing my mind. Uh, the captain class, uh, by Sam Walker, which I thought was just a fantastic book on leadership. Um, and you know, a lot of great thoughts in there on, on building, building winning cultures. Fantastic book. What do you do for fun? My big thing is my big thing is exercise. It's my daily meditation. Um, it's, uh, it's the thing that, uh, that brings me the most joy and it clears my head and allows me to, to kind of, you know, deal with everything else. So that's my, uh, that's my passion. What thing or technology are you most excited about going forward? I think you have to be paying attention to AI. I think the, you know, artificial intelligence, the implications for everything from media to transportation to healthcare, I think it's just starting to rear its head now. But it's something that I'm, you know, keeping a close eye on on how it evolves. And I think that's where, you know, the opportunity in the market is really going to be over the next couple of years. What is your best advice for a first-time CDO? Best advice for a first-time CDO, define your role quickly. Um, if you're the first CDO that a company's hired, um, make sure that you set a very clear um, and audacious North Star for the entire company not just the parts that you manage to aspire to. What question do you never get asked that I did not ask you today that you wish I'd <laughs> asked? <laughs> I don't know. I'm drawing a blank. I'm drawing. I'm drawing a blank. I'm drawing a blank on that one. <laughs> 
Fred, it's been awesome. You've been super generous with your time. Thanks so much for for hanging out today. Um, we're just really excited to uh, to share those pearls of wisdom with our audience. Yeah, Ian, thank you for having me. I love love talking to you, and uh, hopefully, we get a chance to do it again soon. Mission Daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org. We own and operate a network of podcasts and a brand and story studio designed to accelerate learning. Our clients include companies like Salesforce, they're a customer times five, Twilio, and Katera, who work with us because we produce results. To learn more and get our case studies, check out mission.org slash studios. If you're tired of media and news that promotes fear, uncertainty, and doubt, And if you want an antidote to all that chaos, you're at the right place. Subscribe here and to our daily newsletter at mission.org. Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.